I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman, host of Design Matters, and this is OPP. Welcome to another episode of Other People's Podcasts, which highlights your favorite podcasters and the dope shows they created. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter to keep up with our latest episodes and updates about your favorite podcasts. We'll have the link provided for you in the description. This week's special guest is Debbie Millman, host of Design Matters. Design Matters is the world's first podcast about design and an inquiry into the broader world of creative culture through wide-ranging conversations with designers, writers, artists, curators, musicians, and other luminaries of contemporary thought. In this interview, I talk with Debbie about a variety of topics from her early life growing up in NYC, how she got her start in design and marketing, her time as creative director at Hot 97, and the logo she created that is used to this very day. Oh, And of course, we chat about our dope show, Design Matters. So without further ado, on to my conversation with Debbie Millman. Hello, hello. No, we're good. (laughs) Or just move a little bit further away from the mic. There we go. Yeah. That's much better. I've got like a boomy voice. Yeah, it's cool. It's like rapper voice. It's good. All What's good. up, Debbie? How are you? I'm good. How are you, Corey? I can't complain. Good. It feels really good to be here right now. Thank you. It's good to be with you. I've got like my, my, my mindset is right. I was bumping through Manhattan, like jamming out with my Dunkin' Donuts coffee and my pizza, playing Puff Daddy. Where'd and, you get your pizza? Oh, two bros. Okay. <laughs> you know, you know, low class. <laughs> no, no. There's a there's a place on 23rd and 7th where it actually, the price of the pizza just went from a dollar a slice to a dollar 25 a slice. Shame. But it's the best pizza. It's the best See, pizza. Once it went to the 25, I just said, oh, no. Like, no, you know? <laughs> I know, I know. But I always have quarters, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's crazy because my office is right down the street. So I'm very well versed in this area. Right. I, I love it a lot. But thank you so much for being here. Uh, I, I like to make a lot of comparisons. You are the Delilah of podcasting. Really? Yes. You know Delilah? You mean Samson and Delilah? No, remember Delilah? Uh, she has a radio show and uh, it's late night where people confess their feelings. Oh, is that the songbird or the nightbird? Yeah, I think the it's the nightbird. The nightbird, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And she's like, hey, hello, everyone. How are you? And tell me your problems. <laughs> and then and everyone's like, oh, my husband's cheating on me. And right. she just gives some helpful advice. But you have that same very soothing tone. I feel like you have the kind of tone where I can just confess like how I'm feeling and how my day is going. So how are you feeling and how is your day going, Corey? So you're not going to get me today. <laughs> it's like uh, the Jerry Maguire episode right. or the Jerry Maguire scene in, uh, where he cries yeah. when, when he gets his big contract. Right, right. Well, Debbie, where are you from? Originally? I'm a native New Yorker. Born and raised? Born and raised. I was born in Brooklyn. And then when I was two, my folks took me and we moved to Howard Beach, Queens. Okay. And then when I was in the third grade, we moved to Staten Island. Wow. And then my parents got divorced. My mom took me and my brother to Long Island. My dad moved to Manhattan. 
And so I had the weekend excursions on the Long Island Railroad from Long Island to Manhattan. And then I graduated high school and went off to Albany, New York for school. And then in 1983, came back here to Manhattan and have been here since. Wow. You are a true New Yorker. I am. I've lived in all the boroughs except (laughs) the Bronx. And really, I should live in the Bronx just so I can say I am a New Yorker who lived in all the boroughs. But that would mean moving and I don't want to do that. Did did moving around um, throughout the different boroughs of New York as a child have an impact on you? Kind of at all? Um, probably, but not one that I could pinpoint. But I think as a New Yorker, I mean, I don't have any memory of being in Brooklyn, although there are some pictures, lots of pictures of my childhood being that age and being in Brooklyn, but I have no memory of it. I do have lots of memories of being in Queens and Staten Island. And I, I guess that just formulated who I am. Uh, did you have a, a borough that you gravitated towards a little more? Manhattan. Manhattan? Yeah. Why, I, why is that? I don't know. I don't know. I Maybe it has something to do with my father's... My father had a girlfriend who I loved very much uh, after he and my mom divorced, and she lived on 24th Street between 9th and 10th Avenue. She was, I guess what you'd call back then, a career girl. Uh, she was a typist, and she had a studio apartment in a brownstone on 24th Street, third floor studio apartment. And I thought she was the most glamorous woman in the world. And I now live on 24th Street between 9th and 10th Avenue. (laughs) Not in the same brownstone, but a few doors down. Uh, She doesn't live there anymore, though. She lives in Las Vegas now. But I think that maybe has something to do with it. But it's something that is so intrinsic to who I am and something that I could never remember not wanting Mm. to live here. Definitely want to think of the uh, New York has a reputation for native New Yorkers to be a very hard and tough people, which you seem very, uh, very relaxed, very calm, very like a soothing person. Where does that come from? Therapy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Scorpio. I am too. So, oh, really? That means we're Valentine's Day babies. Yes. We were conceived with love. I know. Isn't that amazing? When's your birthday? October 29th. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm loving brave. Oh, so close. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're definitely February babies. And I think that, um, you know, Scorpios have this tendency, and I don't know if you'd have it too, but, you know, we can strike when we're attacked. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, I can have that sting <laughs> if I feel threatened or vulnerable. Yeah. And, and uh, growing up, uh, what was your, your early career path that you desired as a kid? I didn't have one. Mm. Um, I think I always wanted to do something creative. I was always creative. I was always drawing. I was always making things. I was always creating some sort of play with my brothers and sisters or some sort of uh, perfume with baby oil and rose petals and talcum powder, which ended up really just being glue. Um, I was always trying to make something. And as a kid, I imagine that, I mean, I, I don't really remember having a specific aspiration. I think I wanted to be a teacher, actually, because I remember when I was probably in second grade teaching my brother. I would make my brother, my little brother, who's two and a half years younger than me, be a student in my class. And I was enthralled by attendance records. So my 
my folks got me some sort of booklet where I could write down the names of all my pretend students and then do attendance and roll call and put checks. But I was I took it really seriously and I I taught my brother so well that he actually didn't have to go to kindergarten. He went straight into first grade because I was so such an avid and attentive teacher to him. <laughs> Uh, what, what do your parents do? Well, what did, what did they do? Well, my dad is no longer living, but he was a pharmacist until okay. the day he died, working pharmacist. And my mom uh, was a seamstress and uh, also a painter. Mm. I always say, funny you mentioned uh, painting, even on my other show, Silent Giants, where I interview people behind the scenes of popular culture and I always ask them, <clears throat> and they've all achieved amazing, fantastic, great things. And I always ask them um, uh, where they're where they're from. And what do their parents do? Uh, because those two things, I feel like, fundamentally shape uh, who you are. If your mother is a painter, you have a knack for design. And then also, I think geography of where you're from gives you so much of a, a leg up. No. Absolutely. What's Absolutely. your take on that? I agree completely. I think I am the the perfect Venn diagram of my parents. <laughs> my father was an entrepreneur and a, he was a pharmacist, but he had his own pharmacy for most of his professional life. He bought a pharmacy on Staten Island. That's why we moved there and then had his own pharmacy until he died up in the Catskills. And I think that's really where I first became aware of and enthralled by branding in that when I was a little girl, I remember my mom taking us to his store to say hello to him. And this was on Staten Island. And I remember being just enthralled by the barrette displays and the makeup and fantasizing about how those things would make me feel better about who I was. Um, and because my mom was a seamstress and also an artist, I think that's where I get my some of my creativity. So that entrepreneurship and the branding from my dad and the creativity from my mom, brand consultant, brand designer, <laughs> makes perfect sense. Uh, being that growing up in New York is such a unique experience. Like, uh, you know, we take for granted, like for me, a, a school bus, you know, a yellow cheese wagon, taking kids to school and not having that. Um, for you going to college, what inspired you to go out of the city when you could have gone to, you know, NYU or Columbia or a school close by? Because my father wouldn't pay for my education unless I lived away from home. <laughs> Not because he didn't want me to live with him. He just didn't want me to live with my mother. He wanted me to get out. Yeah. And so uh, I did, we didn't have enough money for me to go to NYU or any Ivy League school. Uh, I had a choice of going to any of the state schools. Okay. Uh, but I didn't have a lot of guidance. They didn't help me with my applications at all. I had one of those, the state schools of New York back at the time. And I think still to this day, you could apply to four state schools with one application and one application fee. And so I applied to SUNY Albany, SUNY Plattsburgh, SUNY Oswego, and SUNY Binghamton, I believe. Okay. I got into the mall and decided to go to SUNY Albany because my best friend Tammy was going there. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Really wise, wise guidance by by my folks. Did y'all remain friends uh, throughout college? Yeah, yeah. Okay, because that can go either way. <laughs> yeah, it could, and sometimes it did, but yes. <laughs> and uh, how was your college experience? I loved my college experience. I, I had four amazing years. Well, the first year I was lonely. So I, want to, I don't want to say four amazing years. By the time, by the end of my first, year I, I had found some friends aside from Tammy because Tammy actually was 
already at SUNY Albany when I arrived. This, she was there in her second year. I was there in my first. Okay. And then at the end of her second year, she decided to transfer to Cornell. And so I had to find some new friends. Mm. <laughs> and so by the time my first year ended, I had found a new group of friends. And those friends, I'm actually still friends with many of them today, all these years later. But I, it was the first time I was on my own. It was the first time that I could make something of myself independent of sort of parental influence or obligation. And by the time I graduated, I was the arts and features editor of my school newspaper, which ultimately helped point me in the direction of my career. It gave me my only marketable skill. I graduated with a degree in English literature and a minor in Russian literature. And so I often joke that I have a college degree in reading. <laughs> um, and I, if I had come out of school with just that as my arsenal for job hunting, I don't think I'd have ever found a job. Uh, but because I as as the editor of the arts and features section of my student newspaper, we were required as the editors to also put the paper together, which meant designing them, designing the pages and creating the art mechanicals. And so I learned how to do basic layout and paste up as the editor of this section. And that became the thing that I could use to help get a job when I graduated. I became a, a layout artist. Wow. And uh, what was like your, your first job out of school? My first job out of school was for a cable magazine called Cable View. But cable was just sort of coming out at that time. It was a huge, huge thing. And so there were lots of magazines like TV Guide at the time was the one of the biggest magazines you could get. It had a circulation of a bazillion. And so the cable magazines were coming out to compete with the television guide, TV Guide, because it showed all the cable listings. And yeah. so you'd get the magazine depending on what cable service you had, we would be making all these magazines for these different cable services. And so I started as a designer, not really a designer, I would say more a mechanical artist in the art department. But because I also had an English degree, I worked both for the editor and the art director. So I was going back and forth between the two departments. And so I was doing things like specking the type that I would then lay out, editing copy that could fit into certain uh, space requirements. And so I had a really great foundation at that time of working in magazines, learning both the art direction side by doing layout and paste up, and then as well, working for the editor, doing basic copy editing, and then ultimately becoming one of the editors. Uh, so I'm a... Uh musician first, you know, I moved to New York City to be a rapper. And you are a rapper. Oh, still a rapper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still make music. But, uh, you know, I, I really have fallen in love. Growing up, I used to want to be a journalist first. Yeah. And that's kind of how life is going full circle. Now I'm making music and I'm quasi a journalist, I guess, podcaster. Yeah. But uh, I'm a humongous hip-hop fan. Uh -huh. And I read up that you were, uh, at one point, doing creative direction For over Hot 97. 97. Yeah. Uh, this is almost like fitting to be on Silent Giants because I, I, when I read this, I was like, you got to be kidding me. Yep. How did that happen that you were going to be Hot 97? It was an amazing 12-year experience and one of the great highlights of my life and my career. I was at the time working at a company called Frankfurt Ballkind. 
And I had a prior to working there for many years, I worked for with a partner for Ron Delsner, who is at the time one of New York's great promoters and brought all the major acts to New York. And through that experience, I met lots and lots and lots of really, really cool people. I did the advertising for Madonna's Blonde Ambition Tour back in the late 80s, early 90s. I don't even remember what year that was. Um, And it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. I then ultimately left that agency and went and worked at Frankfurt Ballkind. And when I was there, I got a call from a friend who had been referred to me by another friend who was interested in talking to me and the folks at Frankfurt Ballkind about working with Hot 97 to do their advertising. And they were about to start a repositioning. And the general manager of the radio station was um, a really brilliant visionary woman named Judy Ellis. And I met with Judy Ellis and the managing director at Frankfurt Ballkind. And for whatever reason, these two women did not like each other. It was just bad chemistry from the get-go. And it was really sad because I was so excited about the possibility of doing this project. Fast forward a couple of months later, I end up leaving the agency. And after I left, I heard back from Judy Ellis, who had heard that I'd left the agency and wanted to know if I would be interested in working with her directly as a freelance creative director. And I was like, hell yeah. And so I started working with Judy and then her promotion manager was a man named, is a man named Rocco Macri. Uh, Rocco still has gone on to have his own business now in radio promotion. However, Rocco uh, became my client, essentially. I mean, he reported to Judy, but Rocco was my day-to-day client. And at the time, Hot 97 was a dance music radio station, like a million trillion other radio stations in the world. Judy had the idea that the world needed its first ever hip-hop radio station. And everyone thought she was crazy. Everyone thought that no one would buy advertising on a radio station like that that it could never, ever be successful. But Judy, Judy is, I think, five five foot tall, tiny little dynamite of a woman. She was insistent. She was the general manager of the station and she wanted to do this. So Rocco and Judy and a, and a really extraordinary program manager that I work with named Tracy, and I'm, I'm blanking on her last name and I wish I wasn't because she was phenomenal. Um, and it, a, a designer that I was working with, Johan Vipper. We started to work on creating this hip-hop radio station. And we did. That's what we did. Yeah. We, we launched it in, I think, 92 or 93. And I worked for and with Judy and Rocco until Rocco left the station. And what was the greatest, you know, challenge for designing for the first um, hip-hop station? Um, authenticity and really at the time trying to understand a world that I had not ever been part of. I'm a Jewish white woman from, you know, the Brooklyn through Long Island. And so I had to, I mean, it was always a huge, huge music advocate and all sorts of music but I didn't, I, w- I didn't have any street cred. And so I needed to learn. 
And so I had to become immersed in an environment that was at the same time thrilling, but also really foreign. And I had to be in a position where I could um, give the people that I was working with this sense that they could trust me and that I was completely and utterly committed to doing work that was real and authentic and meaningful and 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 completely unique for the time. Uh, you had the opportunity to create the logo? I did. It's the logo still today. We did the logo twice. We did the logo, I think, either two or three times. We did a couple of tweaks to the original logo, then we changed the logo, we, we redesigned the logo, and then we redesigned the logo again. And then that logo is still the logo today. Uh, knowing what Hot 97 as someone who is a, uh, one thing about coming from Virginia, things in New York, when you were watching TRL as a kid, it felt like you were on, like New York was Mars. Mm -hmm. uh, it felt so far away. There was no internet. The only way you saw New York was through TV. And I, as I'm walking into uh, See You Today, I'm playing all about the Benjamins by Puff Daddy. And on my Hot 97 every day, yeah, that's after, my word. After we get <laughs> off this, after we finish recording, I'm going to show you some of the original contact sheets from the original photo shoots. I still have them. And I don't know if people know this, but Angie Martinez used to be Judy Ellis's secretary, her assistant. Wow. And we knew, we knew then, like Angie was just, she, the, she oozed charisma. She was the real deal. And Judy saw that because she was Judy's assistant. And Judy was like, this woman is going to be a DJ and gave her a slot. And the rest is history. And she became the, the voice of a generation. The, Absolutely. What Carson, Absolutely. Daly, what Carson Daly was for television and she became for radio. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Judy saw that. That's how visionary she was. Uh, how does it feel to, to see that logo and what it represents to hip hop culture. And no matter where you go in the world, everyone knows Hot 97 and they know that logo. How does that feel? Amazing. 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 There's, there's, it's just, it was a gift. It was a gift. And, and it was not only a gift because of the groundbreaking work. It was a gift because I had an experience to work with a group of people. It was the same group of people for 12 years and we did all the photo shoots together. We did all the creative and all of the ideation together. I was part of every photo shoot. I was part of every creative decision. They trusted me. I trusted them. We all became really good friends. And it was amazing. It was amazing. And, and you know, to even be in a position where back in the early 90s, when, you know, you talked about Puff Daddy, you know, back then he was puffy. And then he was Puff Daddy. And then he was Piff Daddy or, P, you know, P. Diddy. P. Diddy. And, and I mean, I remember there was a time when we were doing a photo shoot back when he was Little Kim's manager. This was before he made it really big. He was Little Kim's manager. And Little Kim was late for a photo shoot. So Tracy called Sean and was like, where's Little Kim? You need to get her here. And he brought her. He he went and got her and brought her to the photo shoot. And that was the first time I actually met him. And I knew right then and there, like this is, I didn't know that he was going to go on and become a big, a big star on his own. But I remember thinking, this man is super smart. He knows how to get people to do things. And he was so in command. He was so comfortable in his own skin. 
I was mesmerized. And and then, you know, very quickly thereafter, uh, started producing his own music and his own personal, you know, his own, he had his own hip hop career and still does. And what's so interesting is about five years ago, I had an opportunity to work with him again when he and Mark Wahlberg created Aquahydrate, their mm-hmm. water brand. So he, they hired Sterling when I was the president of the agency and he came in with a whole slew of people to Sterling and we had a big meeting about how he wanted to position Aquahydrate and he didn't remember me, of course, but I said, you know, we met back in the early 90s, Hot 97, Lil' Kim, and it was really funny because he was exactly... Um, the same way I remembered him, smart, really sharp, sees the, you know, he had a really good bullshit meter, but he also was very clear about what he wanted. He wasn't afraid to say what he wanted. He wasn't afraid to um, be be very specific about what he expected, um, exactly the same way he was back in the early 90s. And it was really quite as astonishing. Wow. Uh, how'd you make the move over to Sterling? After Frankfurt Balkind, I was, I didn't, I I had a really really polarizing time at Frankfurt Ballkind. I met Johan Vipper, who I ended up working with with Hot 97. Obviously, that was where I first got the opportunity to to pitch Hot 97. But the um, senior partner, Aubrey Ballkind, didn't like me. I don't know why. He just didn't like me. And I always tell people, never go to work for somebody that doesn't like you. What, was, was, he the, was he new? No, he wasn't new. He was he was one of the partners. Okay. And his one of the other partner, um, the other two partners really liked me, but he didn't. And I knew that Steve Frankfurt, who would who was the person who had brought me into the agency for the interview, really wanted to hire me. And I think that's why Aubrey decided to give me a shot. But he wouldn't hire me as a designer. He didn't think I was good enough as a designer. So he hired me as and I wanted to work there so badly I would have been the janitor, but he gave me an opportunity as an account executive. And and I took it because and also I did some business development, new business development. But like I said, don't don't ever go to work for somebody that doesn't like you from the get go because it's never going to get better. They're never going to think, oh, I was wrong about that person. It, that's well, it, their scheme is already developed. Yeah, and so it was really hard to work. It's just hard to work for somebody that doesn't like you and and to be in their orbit every day and to feel diminished. And by the time I left that job, I had ze- you know I was already. It wasn't like I was oozing self confidence at that point in my life. I was in my early thirties or 30, and and was really insecure about what I was capable of. I'd already gone from being a designer, quote unquote, to an account executive. And that for me was a step down. Um, and I ended up getting cold called by a headhunter who had a job at a branding consultancy and they were looking for a salesperson. And because I did biz dev as well as account work at Frankfurt Ballkind, I guess they thought I had the biz dev skills. When they realized that I didn't fully, they were somewhat tentative about sending in my resume, but did it anyway. And the agency was a company called the Schechter Group, which ultimately became Interbrand. And they wanted to meet me and they met me and then they hired me. They they hired me for this job, but I went from being an, a designer, quote unquote, to an account executive, quote unquote, to a salesperson. So at that point, I took the job because I needed to get out of Frankfurt Ballkind because I needed to pay my mortgage. And I was desperate. <laughs> at that point, my self-esteem had plummeted to such a degree that I thought I was basically unemployable. Mm. And so I took this job and for the first time in my life, aside from the work I was doing at Hot 97, was really good at something. 
I was, and, and, you know, I can't even say except for Hot 97 because that was, it was all the same year. I did the Hot 97 work in 1992 and went to work at, at uh, the Schechter Group in 1992. So it was really before the big launch of Hot 97 and the repositioning of Hot 97. The first campaign I did with them was still when they were a dance music radio station. It wasn't until the next year that we repositioned the, the radio station and it became the world's first hip hop station. So at that point, I was just taking whatever job I could take, I could get to have a job. Because you were doing Sterling and Hot 97 at the same time. Did they cross? Yes. Yes. Okay. I I was Hot 97's off-air creative director. So I wasn't on site. I was freelance. I did the freelance work for them for 12 years. Okay. And ultimately, when I went to Sterling, which was about two years later, I was still doing all the Hot 97 work. And Sterling did the Hot 97 logo. We did it. I did it at Sterling the second time around. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Uh, I read up that you were president. Yes. Um, over over at Sterling. Yes. Um, you, Wikipedia tells me everything, but the, the company went from 50 to, I believe, 150 employees during this time. Uh, well, when I started, there were about 18 people. <laughs> um, it was one office. Uh, Simon Williams, the the founder of Sterling, started Sterling. Out, he, it came out of the Michael Peters group, which, was, which had gone into bankruptcy. So Simon bought hit the New York office for, I think, a dollar. And I was pretty anxious to get out of the Schechter group because when I was there, they, Omnicom, which owned the Schechter group and Interbrand, merged the Schechter group into Interbrand for any number of reasons. I think primarily cost and cost savings. Um, and when that happened, it was political disarray. I don't know if anybody, you know, any, for anybody that's been through a merger where you're not the aggressor <laughs> or the acquirer or the bigger entity, you know that it's just a matter of yeah, time yeah. before the name goes tick, away tick, 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 tick. and you're just assumed by this bigger entity. And that's what happened. So the senior partner that I was reporting to left, like literally we were supposed to move into our new space with Interbrand on Monday and he decided he was quitting on Friday, the Friday before. Our creative director, Ron Wong, who ended up going off and starting Spring Design, he walked out one day. I mean, these are major, major players in a big, big branding consultancy and just were leaving because they didn't want to be there anymore. And I was left thinking, oh my God. <laughs> so I called I called a headhunter that I knew in the business and asked her if she knew of anything out there for me. And she said, well, there's this quirky little agency run by this funny guy, funny British guy, kind of reminds me of Dudley Moore. Um, maybe maybe that could work for you. And I met with Simon Williams and started, I think, two months later in 1995 and stayed until 2016, 21 years. Because uh, going back to, to Diddy earlier in the conversation, yeah. where uh, there's Lil' Kim, who is working, you know, for Diddy, and then you have Diddy. Right. Um, how was that transition from you being a creative to being someone who became kind of Diddy? Um, well, I really wasn't Diddy. I, you know, I was working at the Schechter Group as this biz dev person, and and I was good at it. And I didn't know that I was going to be good at it. I took this job out of desperation. And maybe because I was so desperate, I worked so hard. I worked so hard and I wanted to prove myself and I was good at it. And then I went to Sterling essentially with the same job. I was a vice president of business development at 
at Schechter. And then right before I left, I was, I'd been promoted to senior vice president. And so I started at Sterling with the same title, senior vice president, business development. And I continued my streak. I was almost like in a Michael Jordan streak of whatever I was pitching, I was winning. And basket after basket after basket, I was in the zone. Because you were doing uh, Burger King at this time. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. It you, was you incredible. You made a Burger King logo that's yep. still here today. Yeah, 1999. Um, Twizzlers. Twizzlers was later, but yep. Tropicana. Yep, all of that. I mean, just one after another after another. It was an amazing, extraordinary experience. But what happened at the beginning was um, I was working with mostly a group of really, really talented British designers. Uh, Simon Williams is British as well. Um, and they didn't have a real American designer mentality at the time. And so I was winning all these projects and they were doing beautiful design, but beautiful design for the British market, not for the mm. U.S. market, which is kind of ugly and somewhat hideous. Um, <laughs> so we were we were getting fired for doing beautiful British work when they were looking for much more mainstream American work. And it was really tough. I mean, we were getting, we got fired from Yo Play. We got fired from Hungry Jack. We got fired from Tylenol. I mean, really big projects. So Simon Williams uh, then gave me the opportunity to helm the agency. So he then promoted me from senior vice president of business development to president. And then I became responsible for ensuring that the creative work that we were doing was appropriate for the U.S. market. And and I stayed president till I left. Well, no, actually, the year before I left, I became chief marketing officer because I passed the baton to one of my colleagues who took over. You know, Debbie, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to get into Design Matters. Okay. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. All right, we're back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still getting used to putting ads in. Uh, yeah, it's cool. And <laughs> in, into the podcast. So it was a little bit, uh, I don't know, a little more official. But... um. How did you discover podcasting? I didn't discover podcasting. It discovered me. I was working at Sterling and, you know, I was intoxicated by the success that I was feeling at the time because it was the first time that I was ever successful at anything in this sort of big way. And so from 1995 to 2003, I just had my nose to the grindstone. I was doing two things, Hot 97 and Sterling. And everything that I was doing at Sterling was extremely mass market. Everything that I was doing was very much around market share, return on an investment, um, very commercial, really commercial. And then Hot 87 over the years also became more and more commercial. And as hip hop grew, we had to become, you know, we weren't the only radio station anymore and became much more competitive and everything that I was doing felt like it had to meet a market need. And as somebody that was always drawing when I was a kid, always writing, always making things, I started to feel like my career was one giant commercial enterprise. And that changed a little bit in 2003 when I started writing for Speak Up, which was the first design blog. But 
I was still feeling as if I was sort of dying inside a little bit and was desperate for something. I went, I, when I was depressed um, and I got an opportunity, I got another cold call. I got a cold call from a internet radio network. It was a fledgling internet radio network called Voice America. And they were interested in my doing a business show on branding. And I pushed back a little bit. And I'm like, yes, and, <laughs> as opposed to no, but. And I told them that, I, though, that though I'd love to do a show entirely on branding, I think that a broader show on design, which would include branding, could be much more appealing. Because how did they discover you? I have no idea. I think it was because a piece that I had done on Speak Up had gone viral. Okay. It was uh, November of... 2004, right after the election. And I had written a piece with Mark Kingsley that had gone viral about election graphics. Okay. Because that was the first time we'd seen the use of purple in the election maps. That might be the first uh, use of the word viral. That's Yeah, I don't know that it would have even been something I would have said was had gone viral at that point. It was real popular. It went really popular. So, so popular that a friend of mine sent it to me and said, I think you'd like this, not realizing I'd written it. <laughs> So that's my definition of violence. <laughs> that's when you know you've made it. Well, I, I felt so at that way at the yeah. time. It was it caused quite a sensation. And um we got a cold call at the agency and the woman that, that got the call forwarded it to me. And I thought, you know what? This sounds kind of fun. It wasn't a wasn't positioned as a podcast. It was positioned as an internet radio network that I was going to be doing live. Now, I originally thought they were offering me a job. They weren't. They were offering me an opportunity to pay them to produce the show on Voice America, which is why they ultimately were so willing to let me change the idea <laughs> from a show about branding to a show about design. And that's how it began. The show began as Design Matters. I didn't have a logo. I didn't have any kind of marketing plan. I don't even know if I knew the word podcast at that point. The show was recorded live. Sometimes people called in. We had commercial breaks. The producers of the show were off-site. I was doing everything through ISDN lines and modems and telephone lines and handheld uh, receivers. You know, the receivers that you used yeah. to hold for... Yeah, that's how we did the show. I would be facing someone like I'm facing you now. They'd be in my office, the Empire State Building, and they would be holding a hand, a handheld. Stop. Yes, yes. That's why this. <laughs> that's why the sound is so bad of those first episodes because that's how we were doing it. I mean, I didn't know that anybody would ever be listening to those episodes in 2018, <laughs> in 2005, when I was putting the show. We put the show together in 2004. It launched in 2005. So what happened was I was doing the show live. It was recorded. Re. It was replayed one other time during the week. As an encore. Okay. At like two in the morning. And so people that couldn't hear the show live or listen to the show at two in the morning started to say, well, how can we listen to the show if we're not like glued to our computers at, you know, and in at three, eight, three in the afternoon on Fridays, which is when I recorded it. So Brian e. Gomez Palacio, one of the co-founders of Speak Up, thought, why don't you upload them to iTunes? Almost like an indie musician. Yeah. And I thought, Okay. And I asked Chris O'Rourke, who was the tech guy at my office at Sterling and still a dear, dear, dear friend, if he could help me like upload the shows to iTunes. And that's what we did. 
Wow. When you first started uh, interviewing um, folks, for, as a songwriter or a, a rapper, right, when you first start rapping, you don't really have a voice. You just know, uh, I like I like this type of artist. Let me make music like this. And right. then over time, you kind of develop your own style. How did you develop your interview style? Was there anyone that you looked up to in particular? Do you remember the TV show Northern Exposure? No. There was a TV show that was very popular. I, I don't know what years it was, maybe the late 80s, early 90s, or maybe the 90s. It was called Northern Exposure. Do you know John Corbett, Aiden from Sex and the City? Yes, yes, okay. yes. He was the DJ on that show. And he was my role model. <laughs> How so? <laughs> he did this talk radio thing and he had a really low-key, humble, kind of sincere way of talking about the world. And I thought that was the bee's knees. I just thought he was everything I wanted to be in a DJ. Who was your first guest? John Fulbrook. And uh, tell me about that interview. Were you nervous? Oh, I was really nervous. John at the time was the creative director of Simon & Schuster. I asked him to be on the show because he's really talkative. We had a really, we still have, but he then back then I wanted somebody that had a really good vibe with and somebody that I knew if I got confused, if I choked, if I lost my train of thought, he'd be right there. And I had all over my office, the book covers that he designed, like taped up. I had questions all over in case I got flustered and looked away and needed to know where I was and my questioning. Um, And he was wonderful. I was terrible. He was wonderful. Uh, how'd you ask him? Was it via you know email or just a phone call? Or? John and I were both on the New York chapter board of AIGA, the American Institute of Graphic Arts, and became very friendly at that time. And because I knew how gregarious and outspoken and open he was, I asked him to be, and how accomplished he was right. as a designer and, and how great his work was, I figured he'd be a good first guest. Yeah, the reason why I ask this question is because, you know, I want this to be a platform and a tool for people who want to start podcasting to, uh, you know, how did Debbie do it? And using your network, like doing something that you're passionate oh, about. Oh, yeah, yeah. Talking about it and then using your network uh, to initially um, uh, have folks on your show. How did you, uh, how did the show become a little bit more popular? How were you able to see growth? I started to be a little bit more courageous in who I ask to be on the show beyond my my circle of friends. And I was lucky that people like Milton Glaser said yes and Stefan Sagmeister said yes. Like in the first year, wow. Paula Scher said yes, Michael Beirut, people that I never would have thought would say yes, said yes. Now, I'm somewhat ashamed of those early episodes and I still keep them up in an archive on iTunes Mostly so people can hear how bad they were (laughs) and know that anything worthwhile takes a long time to be good at. And I also want people to see that I became a better podcaster in public Mm. and not to expect to be great at anything the first time out of the gate. I don't even know that I would consider myself great now. I have a lot to learn. I always feel like I'm learning and growing and always want to be better. But that really shows how far I've come. (laughs) Well, I always say sometimes, uh, especially being creative, you can get into your own head. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing is just to do it, right? Just putting it out there is Just taking that first step out. Yeah. I mean, as I've quoted Janie Shapiro many times, a great writer, she feels that confidence is overrated 
and that what is far more important is courage. Courage mm. to take the first step. Mm. And I've done a lot of thinking about what confidence really is. After she said that, it really led me into a probably one year period of researching what confidence really is. How do you get confident? And I think that confidence comes from the successful repetition of any endeavor. The more you do something, the better you get at it, the more likely you are going to be good at it. And therefore you're not afraid to take the chance to do it. We all, anybody that drives a car, chances are they have car confidence. Mm. They didn't start out that way. They started out nervous being behind the wheel for the first time, hoping they wouldn't kill someone or themselves. But over the time that you learn and then get your license and then continue to drive, you then develop car confidence. You know, Michael Jordan has basketball confidence. You know, you do something enough times well, you can predict that the chances are you'll be X percentage successful again. Uh, how, how did you solve the problem um, with your sound? Like, how did that evolution? So, so that was an interesting one. It was 100 episodes with... I did 100 episodes <laughs> with Voice America. And then Bill Drentel, the late, great co-founder of Design Observer, one of Speak Up's first competitors in that space, approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in bringing the show to Design Observer, not Voice America. Now, the Voice America folks were producing the show for me. Bill wanted me to bring the show to Design Observer, but with the proviso that I improve the sound quality. Mm. And I confessed to him that I didn't know how to do that. And as you know, as we set up the show today, (laughs) I know nothing about engineering. And so Bill introduced me to Curtis Fox, who was then doing the New Yorkers podcast and a podcast for the American Association of... the American Academy of Poets. And so he became my producer and has been my producer ever since. It's going on 10 years. Uh, yeah, the importance of a, of a producer. Oh. What, what is, what's his name again? Curtis Fox. Curtis Fox. Uh, what is the role that Curtis Fox does on the show? Like the job description. Curtis shapes the show. Curtis is both my engineer and my producer and my editor. And so he's here when I record my shows. I do all my shows face to face. I prefer the intimacy. I like to be able to look into the eyes of whoever I'm interviewing. Curtis is in the in the room with us. He then takes the raw tape and edits it into what you hear online and does all the front and end stuff that voice is Curtis's and um, gives me notes and helps me think about how to make the show better. Uh, one thing is, I think a lot of folks don't understand, and I, I struggled this, with this myself when I first got into podcasting, with how to reach out to someone that you don't know personally. Uh, what What is your advice on, on that matter? Learn how to write a really kick-ass letter. What, what makes your letters kick-ass? Well, now I talk about all the amazing other people I've had on the show. That helps. You know, when my second paragraph starts with my guests have included... Uh, Brene Brown, Simon Sinek, Marina Abramovich, Hamilton director, Thomas Kael. People think, oh, maybe she is the real deal. But that doesn't mean they say yes. I either get yeses or crickets. Hmm. Very few people actually say no, although some people do. Most people that don't want to be on the show or don't care about what I'm doing or have no interest in even reading the email don't respond. So that's sad. 
because <laughs> I, you know, would like them to. But I also don't always take crickets as the final answer. Sometimes I'll write again, you know, six months, eight months, a year later. And sometimes that answer becomes tangible. Sometimes it's a yes, sometimes it's a no. But I don't stop until I get the no. And even if I get the no, I'll then, there are a couple of people that I, you know, my, my, what does Tim Ferriss call it? The white whale that, that, that I still try to um, approach and will write a year later and say, you know, in the year since we oh. last corresponded, I've interviewed X, Y, and Z. The show now gets, you know, X, Y, and Z downloads. And would you consider? I find that people really respect um, being relentless, you know, because it, it's, it, you're, you're, you're looking to shed light on what they do because you find them amazing and super awesome. Right. So I think being persistent ha- ha- always works. I, I'm trying to interview Milton Glaser. Uh, he's, I, sh- I don't get a lot of no's. He said no? He said no, but he's really busy. But oh, I'm going to try back rats. again. There's someone I really want you, uh, George Lois. Yeah. Has I, he said no to you? No, I have George coming up next month. Oh, fantastic. So I'm like super excited. Yeah. I would love for you to interview him. I too. should interview him. He's really good friends with Stephen Heller. And so I've been meaning to ask Steve for an introduction. That's sometimes how I'll get a yes. There are people that have said no when I ask them directly. But if they're friends with somebody that I know, sometimes it, uh, putting in a good word will right. help. Oh, mutuals always work. Yeah. It, it, it's like being on a, being on a dating. It's yes. Like, it's like dating. Yeah. You get an endorsement. Right? Yes. If you were, uh, if, if I met someone on the street, ice cold, not going to work. But if one friend says, oh, Corey's great. Right. Then you're in. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Now, as an interviewer, all of my guests are uh, very special to me because I learn from every single person. But was there a person that most surprised you in an interview? The person that most surprised me in, in, in an interview was the person who's, interview was the most difficult for me. And that was Richard Worman. That was a very difficult interview for me. He was really blunt, sometimes uh, not nice. Um, And that was hard, really hard, but I learned a lot from it. And ultimately he wrote me and said that he thought the interview, though he didn't think so at the time, was ultimately good. I mean, he accused me of not asking good questions and you know, all very possible, but it was hard to hear in the middle of the interview. So that was challenging. Um, but most people that come on the show that are familiar with the format know we're going to have a big, deep, intimate, sprawling conversation about them. Right, 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 right. <laughs> I mean, that's what I do. I like to talk about how a person became the person that they are. The obstacles, the challenges, the glory, all of it. I mean, I'm endlessly fascinated by how a person becomes who they are. What are the decisions that they made that led them to being right there in that moment with me at that time? I think also too, uh, it's being a podcaster instantly throws you into the realm of being an expert. You think so? Like, let's say for instance, uh, you know, I moved to New York City seven years ago to pursue a career in rap and I realized there was a problem. I don't know anyone in the music industry. Like Silent Giant started off as just being a show about the music industry. Okay. Uh, I I don't know anybody. But I realized something about um, endorsing, right? The power of endorsement. So every single rapper that we love, it's because another rapper told us to love them. Oh my God, that's so good. So Lil' Kim, well, you like Lil' Kim? Well, why do you like Lil' Kim? Because Puffy said, hey, you like Biggie? Why do you like Biggie? Because Puffy said, hey, you can go through the tree a trail of uh, why is Kanye West popular? Because Jay-Z. Everyone needs a cosign. And so I realized, oh, 
if I sit next to someone and we have a conversation, we're instantly one-on-one. Right. You know, the wall is broken down. Yeah. And it's co-signing. Yeah. And I can tell you, having been there in at that moment back in the early 90s, when those early relationships were being formed and those endorsements were happening, that's exactly how it happened. Yeah. Exactly how it happened. Yeah. And I... How do you feel, do you feel that being a podcaster has thrust you, you were already successful as a designer and a creative, but has, uh, how has it elevated your career? I think it's just taken my career to a whole different level. Um, because I think most people that do, if they do know me, know me through the podcast, not really through other, the other things that I've done. So... But it's, it's also a challenge, too, to get to know a person's personality through a logo. That's true. That's <laughs> true. Know? Although I don't think that... I think Paula Scher and Stefan Sagmeister have done a really good job being who they are in, in the design community and in the world, despite the fact that they're designing logos. Then people have gotten to know them that way, and that's part of their brilliance. But But I think that having done it so early and so consistently has also helped. Mm. I think the fact that I still do it and put so much of myself into it is also what makes it feel like it's current. There's a part of the show, and I should have told you this beforehand, uh, where I ask for our podcasters' picks. Oh, okay. Uh, So what are three podcasts that you enjoy that we should be listening to? I really love the show Heroin. I think that's really wonderful. It's a show about women and creativity and imagination. I love Esther Perel's Where Shall We Begin, uh, which is a show about relationships. Mm. And I love 99% Invisible, and I love Radiolab, and I love um, Serial. I love a lot of podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) You're a fan. Yeah. And uh, lastly, why do you podcast? I podcast to inspire people to see that incredible creativity comes with struggle intensity, deep emotions, persistence, resilience, and hope. Debbie Millman, thank you so much for being on OPP, Design Matters. Everyone check it out. You rock. Corey, you're awesome. Thank you. It's (laughs) been an honor. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of OPP and to our very special guest, Debbie Millman. You can find the link to her podcast, Design Matters, in the description of this episode. This episode has been mixed by Mark Bird. For all mixing services, be sure to hit up at Mixed by Mark. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off. Till next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.